This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. The Australian landscape could well be the setting for something as epic as Greek myth. And we may have such a thing in Jock Sarong's latest work, The Burning Island. So, Jock, welcome back to 3CR. G'day, David. It's lovely to be back. The setting here, where we're located, is the Ferno group of islands. What is your fascination with this group of islands and where exactly is it? The Ferno Islands are the eastern side of Bass Strait. If you can imagine a vertical line between, say, Wilson's Prom and the northeast corner of Tassie, that whole right-hand side of Bass Strait is dotted with islands and there's this particular group of them called the Ferno. They're made of big silver granite domes, um, very, very beautiful beaches and, and beautiful mountainous landscapes. And I guess the fascination with that place is the fact that they are a tiny, sleepy outcrop of rocks in the middle of the sea, and yet they've had this extraordinarily large impact on Australian history because of the people who inhabited the islands and visited the islands. But also then, your previous novel was set down here because there's all sorts of shipwrecks and things taking place here. Yeah, there's a 50-year period with these islands that I'm really interested in, which stretches from the wreck of the Sydney Cove, which was 1797, through to the closure of an Aboriginal settlement called Waibalina on Flinders Island, which was 1847. Well, what you had previously was the wreck of the Sydney Cove. Now we've got the wreck of a fictitious boat called the Howrah, which is loosely based on the Britomart, and it was suggested that there might have been uh, money associated with that wreck. And we've got a crew, a ship going down, the Moonbird, to ostensibly search for the missing people and presumably the money. But this boat, the Moonbird, is actually populated by a rather intriguing array of people. You've got Eliza Grayling, a female who is our prime narrator. Yeah, I um, yeah, I really enjoyed inhabiting Eliza in the telling of this story. And I think she makes a good central um, perspective to look out at everybody else, the strange people on the boat and the weird environments that they're passing through and all these... Um, unexpected events that assail them as they go along. She's looking after her father, Joshua, who is blind. Yeah, so Joshua in preservation was um, a serving officer. He was intelligent and dispassionate and careful and um, life has overtaken him and he, um, he started drinking what's effectively moonshine cooked up by convicts in the bush and... Um, because he's blind and he's an alcoholic, it falls very heavily to Eliza to look after him day to day. And, and, and that's been at enormous cost to her, you know, in terms of running her own life and, and potentially finding a husband. But also Joshua has a unique way of looking at things, shall we say. And we'll leave it there for the moment. We've got other characters on board. The master of this ship is one Herman Argyle, who wears a dress? <laughs> yeah. um, very, very early on, I had in mind that Argyle was going to be a very serious man and a very masculine man who wears a dress. And um, I think at first I was even asking myself why that would be the case. And 
I think cross-dressing, particularly when it's men doing it, it it's always fetishized in popular culture. And um, I don't think that's a complete treatment of the phenomenon. I think there might be other reasons that it might happen. And Well, you do provide us with a reason, but people yeah. have to read to look at that. You've got Angus and Declan Connolly, brothers who were separated and now found themselves together. Another unique combination. Yeah, it's almost comic relief, but one twin is raised in Ireland and one's raised in Scotland. And they find each other almost by accident, although there might be a nefarious hand at play there, but they find each other when they're both transported to Australia. So they are incredibly tight and yet they drive each other crazy and there's quite a bit of sort of comic violence between them. Well, it's an eccentric collection. And to top it all off, we also have Dr. Henry Fisk Gideon, very biblical name, Gideon, <laughs> who is an intriguing character, almost like a naturalist you would find because he's looking at the forms of life that one discovers in this new landscape. Yeah, and naturalists, um, they, they don't fit into any easy paradigm for us in modern society. These were men who ostensibly were doing science, but they weren't really scientists. They didn't have much in the way of objective method or um, published work. They simply travelled the world collecting specimens and often on selling them to collectors back in Europe. And Gideon is probably such a man, although he does have an intellectual curiosity about what he's doing. Um, but it was a way of being an adventurer, I suppose, and a traveller. And he's an intriguing guy. Well, this brings us now to the reason for the journey. And as I suggested earlier, it's mythological in nature because it is Dr. Gideon that introduces us to Fibonacci. I was thinking about those mythic structures, as you say, of things like um, Theseus and the Minotaur and um, obviously Heart of Darkness. The idea that when you have a journey into the devil's lair, often the, the primary reason for going in there um, tends to fade out of view and all of these other factors are brought to bear. And that's what happens here. And Gideon is interested in spirals and he's interested in the geometry of the paper nautilus shell. And that stems from his interest in this mathematician called Fibonacci, who came up with um, a thing known as the golden ratio, which is a way of measuring spirals which occur all over the place in nature in everything from reproductive cycles of animals through to the way that leaves emerge from a seedling when it comes out of the ground. Um, Eliza is looking at this and noticing that the voyage that they're taking into Bass Strait is itself a spiral and that everything must therefore wind inwards towards a central point. And early on in the book, she says to Gideon, looking at the map, she has this moment of, of utter panic where she realises that the voyage can only ever spiral inwards. There's not any conception of a journey home, and it terrifies her. But also then, it's a spiralling in towards an understanding of one's self. Yes, and that's the critical bit about a heart of darkness journey or um, Apocalypse Now or any of those epic journeys, is that, yes, that, that primary quest falls away and what you have as you say is, is a journey into self and that's very much the case for Eliza. But they also then come across an extraordinary array of people and communities on these islands as if they're taking some 
odyssey into another world. So a case in point, you've got all of these sealers down there and people living really primitive lives. But for example, you've got the Swedenborgians and St. Anthony's <laughs> Fire. What's going on there? Well, you're right. It's, it's a thing you see in, say, Gulliver's Travels or the Odyssey, that there are these communities that, that the heroes will come across as they travel along. Um, there wasn't a particular reason that I needed Swedenborgians when I, when I went researching, but um, they, they gave me, as you say, one of those isolated communities. And what's interesting about it, I think, in, in storytelling terms, is that when the Britomart did disappear in Bass Strait, the newspaper in Sydney made a huge thing of it, that, that the sealers down in the islands had set false lights and that they'd murdered everybody and that the ship was laden with bullion that was headed for a bank in Tasmania. And there were all of these really extremely florid tales getting around about what had happened. And I wanted the people on the Moonbird to find something that was both that extraordinary, but also much more ordinary, that there were communities simply getting by and existing in the islands. Also then, you've got another aspect of Australian history, Taranera. Yes, um, a really important figure. Tanora was a, a northeastern Tasmanian woman, in other words, a Palawa woman, who had been taken into forced labour by a whole variety of white men along the way. She only lived to maybe 30, but it was a short life which was predominantly spent in servitude to white men. And along the way, she was taught to use guns in order to, I imagine, to hunt or to um, keep down vermin for settlers. She then passed that knowledge to Palawa people who were insurgents, who were living in the bush, and she stole guns and handed them over to her own people. So that it's one of these very rare instances in colonial history where the firearms that belonged to the settlers were, were stolen from them and used against them. And Tarnora spent a bit of time on the run and she was really hated and feared by the settlers because she was very, very able and she could, she was charismatic. She could pull people in behind her. Also then you've got the history of the region where there was a purging of the Aboriginal community. Yes. So George Augustus Robinson, the, the missionary was at this stage rounding up Tasmanian Aboriginal people in order to put them in this idealised settlement that he had in mind, where he would Christianise them and Europeanise them. Not only was he rounding up Palawa people on the Tasmanian mainland, but he also had agents of his moving through these islands in 1830, looking for the Tyrellor women, who were the wives of the sealers, um, rounding them up and also pulling them into this settlement project because he felt they were living in sin or some kind of peril. Now, with all of these threads that you've got going, the mythological, and by the way, the moonbird, the figurehead on the moonbird is actually Achilles. Oh, I'm so glad you picked up on that. Yes. And um, anybody who's read Preservation will recognise why it's Achilles. Um, it, it's a big nod to anybody who's read the previous book. <laughs> but it's also a recognition of the inner journey that we take whereby our undoing is brought about by 
a flaw in our own character. Yes. And for any of the um, quote unquote villains in this piece, each has left behind some particular flaw that can, that can be that undoing. But also then you've got Srinivas, the son of somebody that died in the previous novel coming back, but his fate is similar to that of his father. Yes. And the thing about Srinivas was that in preservation, um, he was representative of this class of people who were the Lascars, who were Asian seafarers who were used by the British as labour. Um, I wanted to change his positioning in this story 32 years on from then. And now he's a successful immigrant who's built a business. So Srinivas um, has become a timber merchant in part based upon his experience of having been on the south coast of New South Wales, where there were all of these very useful timbers. Um, so I wanted to give him that different identity in, in an emerging society in Sydney. Well, basically what we have then is a search for the Howrah, a shipwrecked vessel, and a uncertainty about what the cargo was, including what happened to... Uh, the people on board, which we do find out in the end. So that's one journey. We also then have the journey of these characters going back into their past lives, which actually explains why Herman Argyle is wearing a dress, but also then a whole philosophy or mythology uh, linked to Australian history where we bring up Fibonacci and how life turns on itself, as well as how life has its epic proportions. So the book is actually called The Burning Island. The author is Jock Sarong, and it's a text publishing release. So, Jock, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thanks a lot, David. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, David. And now it's time for my author. The last time I spoke with Alex Miller was back in 2017 with his book, The Passage of Love. And one of the lines from that book was, now I must write the book about Martin. And he did. Welcome back again on Published or Not, Alex. Thanks, Jan. Good to have you back. In The Passage of Love, Martin Block is the name you gave him. This book is called Max. Max Blatt was your friend for 20 years. Now, there was quite an age difference between the two of you. So what made the essence of this friendship? Yeah, he was my father's age, um, born in the same year as Dad. And uh, I, and I believe he never really felt enormously the difference between us in age. The context, we, uh, I met him first at a meeting I'll never forget. We, my first wife was a very great friend of his, his wife and uh, Ruth Blatt. She said, I, I want you to come and meet my cultivated European friends. And we went to dinner. Uh, Ruth talked nonstop. I don't remember anything she said. Uh, Max didn't say anything. And I've never forgotten that because it kind of emerged out of his massive silence that he seemed to be living in. And he wasn't somebody who gave other, other dinner guests and everybody as normal were giving their opinions about the local political scene 
about uh, the cultural scene, about, um, well, pretty well anything that's in the newspapers. Max didn't venture an opinion about these things. And I was enormously impressed by this <laughs> because I felt the same. I thought, come on, we don't all have valuable opinions about these things. And I thought, if only I could penetrate the silence, I would find there a rich hoard of wisdom, of humanity, intelligence. And I don't know, I just found an infinitely attractive man. So when we were leaving, he picked uh, Thomas Mann's Dr. Faustus off the shelf and handed it to me and said, when you've read this, I'd um, love it if you could come back and we can talk about what you think of it. And I don't know whether you know Faustus or not, but Dr. Faustus is an extremely difficult book by anyone's uh, measure. Uh, and these days I can't read it. I find it seriously boring. But then I did, and I read it in a kind of a glow of excitement and interest because the book stood for his belief. My desire to be a novelist was a serious thing and could be accomplished. So it was the first notion I had from somebody else that they recognized this capacity in me. And as you know, that is a, it satisfies something in you that you've been looking for without being aware of it, you know? Well, your first book, Comrade Paul, related to an incident in Max's life, and he told you about other happenings. You knew he had been involved in resistance movements in, in Germany. You knew he'd been tortured by the Gestapo. His first wife had died in Poland. He'd met his second wife in Shanghai. So what made you want to find out more about him? Well, I loved him. And I only knew his uh, Australian life. But also he bequeathed to me over the years this collection of broken stories, bits and pieces of his life in what was obviously an attempt to tell me his story, to introduce me to the sources of his experience. Max had described his own life to you as futile. He said he was a failure and achieved nothing. So what were you looking for? I was hoping to perhaps unrealistically knit all those broken fragments of his life together and make something larger and more complete out of it. And that was something that he had suggested to me when Comrade Pavel, the story you just referred to, when that came out in 1975, his response to it was quite emotional. And he said, you could have been there. Which to me was saying, yeah, you did it. You've got it. This is it, exactly. Um, you can write. It can be done. So it was sort of proof of his earlier belief, which at that stage was unproven. I hadn't written anything much. To go on and discover, uh, if I could, links between these broken pieces of his past and bring them together. I, I did a Zoom the other night with Prue Mansfield in Bendigo, and she said this really beautiful thing. She said, the Japanese have a craft of mending pots, broken pots, putting the shards together and mending them with gold, seams of gold. And she said, that's what you've done with Max's life. And I thought, Wow, I wish I'd known that. I could have used it. It's so beautiful. Well, you're even searching for Max among, as you say, the scattered pieces of a shattered past. 
You don't have chapter numbers. You give them fragment numbers. It's not all dry fact-finding. There are descriptions of the places that this journey takes you on, such as the electric music scene in Berlin, the old villages in Poland, the dark beach fairy tale forests, and the Sea of Galilee. You really enjoyed your swim in that Sea of Galilee, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I enjoyed having a mock fight with Ron Sharp. <laughs> who came with us. Ron's a very dear friend and he had no part to play, if you like, in it. But the people who came with us in the end were kind of drawn in by their own interest and their own passion for Max's story. One of the amazing things about this whole thing, I, I wasn't writing a novel, I was writing a non-fiction. I was looking for the facts. I wasn't interested in fantasy. I wanted to know what really happened, which is what people on this journey always want to know. Uh, people want to know what really happened. And we, he never knew what happened to his family. He didn't know what happened to his wife, Hannah. And all we had of her was her, her name, Hannah. Uh, we never got her surname. And all his life, he carried with him a small photograph of her in his wallet. You don't do that without entertaining in your soul some hope that she's still alive as he was. He had no knowledge of what happened to her. Chances are she was dead. Chances are he was dead, but he wasn't. So it was possible to survive and he had survived. And keeping a photograph in your wallet for 40 years of your first wife to me is a um, very strong sign that you believe that person is still somehow with you. In Israel, you met the only other living member of Max's family, his niece, Liat. Now, she had been told by Max She's, that uh, you uh, would uh, write his story. Yeah. Did he ever ask you to do this? It was a kind of implication. Once Comrade Pavel came out, so the family has gone on. Her father, whose life Max saved, who got to Eretz Israel, as it was then, uh, the land of hope, was still Palestine, of course, and he's, his life was saved by that. Uh, he, was the only other, he was the only other one apart from Max who survived from the whole family. But he then got married and created a whole new family, which is now in its third generation with the children of Liat's children, her grandchildren, who are all running around yelling and screaming like everybody else. <laughs> How lovely. Over the years, Alex Miller, you've won nearly every Australian literary award that can be won. The Miles Franklin, the Commonwealth Writers Award, Christina Steed, Manning, Manning Clark Medal and the Melbourne Prize for Literature. Max Blatt's belief in you as a writer. Over the years, it became second nature for you to write with a question in your mind. Would Max approve of this? And Absolutely. what do you think yeah. this book? Yeah. Yes, he would approve. And uh, someone asked me, what do you think he would say if, if he read it? I said he wouldn't say anything, but he would weep. And that would be for his wife, for Hannah, for whom we were still looking. He exists again for his family. And, and meeting Liat was a reunion. It wasn't the first time I'd met her. I, was, I met her 50 years ago or more at... Uh, Max and Ruth's house in Caulfield. She reminded me when she first telephoned me, the first, con first contact we had was a telephone call from her 
when I answered the phone, she said, hello, Alex, it's Liat here. Do you remember me? Mm. Do I remember you? I didn't. I, but she reminded me that uh, when I used to come to see Max, she spent a year uh, at the Blutz house studying when she was 15 years of age. And when she was coming to, when I was coming, I'm sorry, to the, to the house to see Max, he would say to her, do you mind taking your homework into the back room? Because mm -hmm. Alex is coming and we occupy the front room all afternoon and into the evening. So she'd always run to try and open the door before anybody else so she could get a look at me. <laughs> <laughs> but so meeting again, meeting Leah again in, um, we did, we met in Tel Aviv the first time. We didn't say anything. We just hugged. Mm. It was so moving. And she, it turned out, and I hadn't known this, of course, she held Max in the same esteem as I did all her life. For her, he was also her sort of moral hero as he was mine. And to give her the ability to remember him again with you, it's one of the biggest, as, as in all Jewish things they say, long life to the living to remember the names of the dead. Yeah. It was, in the end, it became the meaning of the book, the reason of the book, a book about the living, not about the dead. I think it was Kitty Altman who first said to me, remember, you're not writing a book about the dead, you're writing a book about the, the living. And the, and the continuing repercussions of everything that happened then as it travels through the lives of the generations now. Well, it's the how and why of Alex Miller's search into finding the facts about his friend Max Black. And it makes for an interesting read of connections in Max. Thanks very much, Alex. Thanks, Jen. Well, Jen, that takes us out for another week. And look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week. See you then. Well, let's Bye. talk then. <laughs> <laughs> Listen in next week. Bye for now. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.